Welcome back, everyone. This week is part two of my interview with geographer Dr. Jacob Schell. He specializes in human transportation networks that rely on animals. His book, Giants of the Monsoon Forest, Living and Working with Elephants, is a thought-provoking read. If you haven't heard part one, please do listen, because that's where we talk about the history, really fascinating history, of humans using elephants. We talk about why Asian elephants are still used, while African elephants are not. And then he also describes how new elephants are captured. We left off on the cusp of talking about how continued use of elephants may help with conservation. In this episode, we pick up where we left off and shift toward exploring how humans and elephants interact in modern Myanmar and what this means for the future of the Asian elephant. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Senor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Before we get started, one thing we didn't get to talk about in his book that I think is worth mentioning is that among both African and Asian elephants, there's been an increased frequency in the number of elephants born without tusks. In some parts of Southeast Asia, the males that are tuskless are called Makona males. Why are there more individuals being born without tusks? Well, a lot of popular media outlets say that elephants are evolving to not have tusks in order to avoid poaching. But this isn't really accurate, and it represents a pretty common misunderstanding about evolution. The elephants are not selectively choosing to mate with elephants that have no tusks in order to try and increase the number of tuskless individuals born. If they were, that would imply that the elephants know that they're being poached for their tusks and have decided that this is a good strategy to protect future generations. But evolution just doesn't work that way. There is no goal. There is no direction. So what gives? What's really going on? One form of evolution, natural selection, happens in response to pressure from the environment. Those that survive pass on their genes to the next generation, along with some frequency of inherited traits that may have contributed to that survival. Under no pressure from the environment, the frequency of tuskless individuals in both African and Asian elephants is generally and historically pretty low. But under intense poaching pressure, where tusked individuals are preferentially removed from the population at a rapid pace, it is impossible for there not to be a shift because tuskless individuals are usually not poached, which leaves them to mate. Assuming having a tusk or not having a tusk is linked to genes, simple genetics will lead to an increased frequency of tuskless individuals 
because poaching is removing the tusked individuals from the population. Eventually, under enough pressure, we may see a complete loss of this trait. Now, it could take a really long time, or it could take a pretty short amount of time when we consider the generation time of elephants. How quickly this happens is linked to the intensity of poaching pressure and the amount of genetic variation that exists in any given elephant population. So, to sum up this phenomenon, poaching is leading to an increased number of tuskless elephants because tusked elephants are being killed and therefore can't mate and can't pass along the tusked trait. Okay, enough of this little evolution lecture and let's get back to Dr. Jacob Shell and where we left off last week. What I really, you know, before we sort of get to that, um, you know, you spend quite a bit of time in the book, Giants of the Monsoon Forest, talking about the men, mostly men, a few women here and there, um, that work with the elephants. Um, and again, my pronunciation may be poor here. Um, in Hindi, it's Mahouts, and in uh, Burmese, it's Uzis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. And, so, and, and, and in Kachin, it's Magoila. Um, Magoila. Okay. Yeah. I just, I need to put in, I need to put in a plug for, for the Kachin because they, they were so important to this research. They just don't, they don't have a country named after them. So they're sometimes harder to remember. And we'll, we'll sort of talk about at the end also what's happening to them at the moment, which is, you know, um, I'm sure is, is on your mind. Um, so I'm curious, how does one become a fandi, so elephant catcher or a mahout, and why? Like, why is it? Is it like a specialized thing that happens in families where generation after generation they they take this up? Or I'm just sort of fascinated by how one becomes a mahout. Yeah, that, that that's a great question. Um, oftentimes the tradition was passed on uh, from generation to generation, usually from father to son. Um, though, as you mentioned, there were some fascinating exceptions I found. I did. I was told at the beginning of the research that there were zero female mahouts ever. Um, it, it can't possibly happen. But I had some reason to believe from some historical records I saw that there are, at the very least, there's exceptions. And so I just sort of kept pushing and pushing and pushing to find if there were at least a couple exceptions in the present era. And the answer is yes, there were. And so that was that was certainly interesting to discover, but no, the overwhelming, uh, 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 the overwhelming amount of times, um, it is a, it is a, uh, male identified, uh, profession and which tends to be passed on from father to son. But, uh, what, what, what's sort of worth remembering is that in some of these regions, uh, working with elephants in order to get at a particular valuable forest commodity that the elephants are uniquely skilled at accessing and transporting is a more lucrative thing to do than most of the other options that might exist in that particular area. So for example, um, in Northeast India, I did research in an area called uh, Mitong, where to some extent, a lot of the sort of powerful people who owned many elephants in the area, these would be like sort of tribal leaders within the local Kachin or there it's called Singpo uh, community and the local Kampti community. And you would sort of have like a, someone powerful who owns a bunch of elephants and is sometimes out in the field with his elephants or her elephants in one case, but mostly his elephants. 
But actually, a lot of the actual workers who are there all the time living in tents uh, while the elephants are off in the forest in the middle of the night, and then they go find the elephant in the morning, and then they go find like a valuable tree to haul back to a sawmill. Um, those people were actually, for the most part, were not people who had inherited the uh, the profession from their parents. Rather, these were, uh, in most cases, the children of farmers. Of like, if you go enough generation back, enough generations back, what we would be basically think of as uh, peasant farmers. Um, nowadays, you maybe wouldn't use that exact term, but these are basically the children of farmers, or in some cases, the children of like village shopkeepers and people like that. But there's actually more money for them to be made working with the elephants, doing this very kind of like high skill labor, getting these incredibly valuable pieces of timber out of the forest in this particular area anyway, to this sawmill where the wood gets uh, turned into things like furniture, most, mostly consumed in, uh, in the case of India by, uh, Indi uh, by Indian consumer markets. And so there are these particular kind of market dynamics that are sort of encouraging certain young men to go into these professions. And then if you look at the, on the Burmese side of the border, there's a particular village uh, called Onglot, uh, which um, comes up a little bit in the book. And I actually did more interviews uh, with someone from there after the book came out. But in Onglot, uh, it's set in a valley that has a lot of valuable commodities. There's jade mines in one part of the valley, and there's amber mines in another part of the valley. This is the this is like the world's largest supply of amber that dates back to the time of the dinosaurs. You can get amber with little pieces of mosquito with like dinosaur blood in it, like in Jurassic Park. Right. So a lot of the world's amber that actually has that kind of Jurassic Park pedigree to it is from this particular valley called the Hukong Valley in, uh, in northern Myanmar. But anyway, there's like a jade area and there's a gold mining area and there's an amber area and there's a timber area. And Onglot is in none of these areas. Um, and so if you're from Onglot, the way in which you're going to make uh, the the way in which you're sort of going to make some extra cash for yourself, Onglet has to some degree expanded out its farming operations, but it's not really a great part of the forest in terms of its soil properties and in terms of the intensity of monsoon flooding for that kind of thing. So Onglet kind of has, has uh, oriented its village economy uh, around keeping elephants uh, like sort of, uh, and sort of renting out cross-forest transport elephants to other people in the valley that need to get from point A to point B which oftentimes is a particular uh, rebel army called the Kachin Independence Army, which I'll probably talk about a bit later, but that sort of gives you a sense of just how kind of valuable the elephants can be from a transportation point of view for various kinds of, uh, within the geopolitics and also economy of this particular valley and its connected areas. And so Onglot as a village has sort of plugged into that operation, this kind of like elephant-based mobility operation and that too has sort of tended to draw young men uh, and to some degree young women, because the person I spoke to from Anglet also cited examples of women who are mahouts and uh, into that into that sort of mode of livelihood uh, as opposed to doing other things. So in other words, to some degree, uh, the knowledge is kind of the sort of trunk of how the knowledge is passed down, what would tend to be from father to son. But over the course of that process, you have outsiders that are drawn in and drawn in and drawn in because there's this pretty recurring set of economic values to having this means to be able to cross the forest in ways that other vehicles can't do. Sure. Well, okay. Well, and so what's really striking to me about that, or I guess 
it seems like there might be different types of relationships that these mahouts feel they have, whether it's come from generational or whether it's a relatively new sort of young person trying to improve their economic situation. Did you notice a different perspective based on sort of the type of mahout they were? Mm. Oh, that's that's an interesting question. Well, yeah, I mean, there was one mahout that I did some long interviews with, uh, and he was someone who had learned like Mahootship skills from his father and from his grandfather. And he wanted his son to become a Mahoot. And he had this elephant that was a really tricky elephant, Neong. You might be, you may, you may, you may be recalling this chapter. And Neong was a really difficult elephant because Neong basically wouldn't work with anyone else except this particular Mahoot I was interviewing. And when this Mahoot tried to like have uh, friends or family members work with this elephant, the elephant would throw them off their, their necks. And then actually one really unfortunate sounded case actually wound up killing a uh, close uh, family member of this Mahout. Um, so this Mahout basically was the only guy who could work with Neong, who was a really powerful, valuable elephant. Ideally, you don't want them to be so kind of gruff and difficult with human beings. You want them to be nice to human beings. But uh, Neong compensated for that by being a really sort of powerful, strong elephant that could move really difficult cargo across really rough forest landscape, which is the exact thing that one of these forest mahouts wants to uh, have out of a big, powerful tusker, tusker elephant like Neong. So, uh, so this mahout, his name was uh, Mongcho, by the way, but this mahout would always have to be in the forest with his elephant. Because one thing I haven't mentioned yet, which I, which is, I think, important to mention here is that these particular elephants that are doing all this work in the forest, they're not kept in barns. They're not kept in stockades. They're not kept in corrals. They're not kept tied up. They have, they, they have and need to have freedom in the forest on a nightly basis. And that's a key component of how this elephant keeping culture, at least in the Transpatkai region, and to a large extent in the, in the, in the case of those elephant logging village that, villages that the Burmese Forestry Department administers, works. The elephants have to be out in the forest on a nightly basis. That's to sleep, to get food, to get fresh fodder, uh, as well as to find mates, either with other uh, work elephants or in some cases with wild elephants. And so since this really difficult elephant, Neong, had to have forest access on a nightly basis, that meant that Mong Cho, the Mahout I was interviewing, also had to be on the forest every single day. And so Meng Cho would always be seeing his elephant and would never be seeing his own family members. And he described to me how Neong had sort of become like a new son for him. And he like didn't get to see his real human son very often and was always dealing with this elephant, which had sort of become like, and he used a term like prodigal son, basically, uh, to describe uh, how he felt about, about Neong. It wasn't really him who said prodigal son. What was going on is that, so, so this particular Mahout I was interviewing was Buddhist. He wouldn't use a term like prodigal son. But the person who was translating what he had to say, because he was speaking Kampti, which I don't speak, but the person who brought me to his elephant camp was Kachin and was able to act as a go-between between the two of us. And the Kachin are mostly Christian. So the person who was translating um, immediately plugged into this metaphor of prodigal son in order to make sense of, uh, of, what, uh, of what the interview subject of what Meng Cho had just had just said. I found this also fascinating just from a kind of like comparative religious studies point of view uh, and that kind of thing when that happened. So that was a, that was a really interesting thing to sort of see how the demands of forest life and, 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 and what demands is places on 
the Mahout. This will sort of alter the Mahout's own family dynamics and perception of the elephant that they're off in the forest with as a new family member. And then you could sort of contrast that with another kind of Mahout I met, who was uh, an Adivasi from the big river valley in Assam, the Brahmaputra Valley. But he was an example of someone who had been sort of, he had left his family, which is a farming family. He didn't want to do that anymore. He thought it was claustrophobic. The wages were low. It was too narrow a life. He wanted to have freedom out in the forest. And so he had joined with one of these big sort of powerful forest owning tribal groups. Um, I think in this case, this is a Compti group uh, as well. And he had been assigned an elephant. He didn't own the elephant. It was, it was the tribal group that owned the elephant, but he had been assigned it. This is your elephant. Go find valuable timber in the forest with this elephant. Uh, and I asked him how he felt about his elephant. And he sort of described it very affectionately, but with a somewhat different point of view. Not Certainly not the term prodigal son, but more like, this is my best friend who's like allowed me to escape from this really kind of crowded, smothering situation I was in before. He, he mentioned his parents wanted him to come home, but he loved being off in the forest, which he perceived as this like adventurous frontier where he had freedom. And the elephant was his best friend who was giving him access to that freedom. So a really different, uh, very kind of loving in its own way, very affectionate, but also very different kind of dynamic than the previous example, which is more a kind of like concerned father kind of uh, dynamic. So I found those kinds of contrasts really evocative and, and fascinating uh, as I was doing this research. That, that's really interesting. And I, I, I want to circle back to Neong. Was that the name? Yeah, that, that's uh, a, okay. <laughs> a little bit, um, a little bit later, but you mentioned that in a very important part of the, I guess the, the persistence of these forest elephants is the fact that they're released into the forest at night and, and, but they are released with chains on their front legs. So, so why the, and, and, and to be clear, right, from what you wrote, the chains are, are long enough that they can walk um, and not necessarily harm. And they're not as strong as we might think because uh, they, they can break them. And this is done from a safety perspective. Is that, is that right? Or kind of what is the purpose of the chains and to kind of help understand what's going on there? Sure. Well, I mean, just to kind of start at the beginning of how, how this, I guess you could call it a kind of co-species strategy works or how, how it's evolved. The elephants are, are released into the forest on a nightly basis so they can find food in the forest, first and foremost. Now, you don't necessarily have to do that for elephants to find food. You could gather all the food for your elephant. This is what they do at zoos, after all. They don't let at, 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 at zoos with elephants, they don't let the elephants go off into some forest beyond the edge of the zoo to find their own food, right? Right. But per elephant, you have to gather about 600 pounds of food per elephant, which if you're a zoo with massive resources and grants from like the Guggenheim Foundation or whatever. And trucks. You, you, and trucks <laughs> and, and all this kind of stuff. You, you, can, you can pull that off, hopefully. But in the case of these like less capital intensive cultures, uh, you can't afford to do that. And why would you do that anyway, given that you're surrounded on all sides by the elephant's uh, native habitat, where there's plenty of fresh food, which is probably healthier for them anyway, because it's fresh um, and has more has more nutrients uh, as a result of that. Um, so the elephants are released into the forest for food. And then what's really significant, in addition to that, is that elephants tend not to mate with each other 
particularly well when they perceive themselves as being held in captivity. So it's extremely difficult for zoos to get to Asian elephants to mate with each other or to African elephants to mate with each other for that matter. It's a big problem because in the case of African elephants, it's maybe not as dire a problem, though it could be one day. In the case of African elephants, you have about a half million of them in the wild. Um, in the case of Asian elephants, there's actually only 50, it's actually at this point more like 40,000 uh, Asian elephants left. So the species situation for Asian elephants is way more dire and critical than it is for, for African elephants, which I think is not something that's widely perceived uh, for, for various reasons. Um, but it has to do with the fact that the rate of deforestation in Asia has been so much more extreme. And so it, for, from a conservationist point of view, it's sort of tempting to suppose, oh, well, why not just get all of these Asian elephants into relatively more managed, walled kind of settings, fenced-in settings, fenced in not so much to keep them in, but to keep like ivory poachers out and to keep the forests, the forces of deforestation out. But the problem is that elephants that perceive themselves as being held in a condition of spatial captivity like that, they tend not to mate particularly happily, which is sort of like humans in a lot of ways, right? Like we need to be in just the right mood in order for that yeah. to happen, right? And, um, and pandas and, and cheetahs. Well, with, and with pandas, it's, it, it's um, yeah, exactly. Um, and with with a lot of a lot of sort of stubborn maters uh, like that, it's a dilemma for which it's very difficult to know what the proper solution is. But in the case of Asian elephants, if you can't get them to mate inside of a walled facility, at least not very easily. And then if you have them in the wild, then they're vulnerable to poachers and they're vulnerable to various kinds of economic forces that are pushing for deforestation. And so that's maybe not such a great situation for them either. It can be hard to know what to do, but in many of the situations that I was so interested in and like, and I was you know, traveling to and doing my interviews in these areas, you do to some degree get a kind of a best of both world situation where if an elephant is doing work for humans in the daytime and those humans are invested in the survival of that elephant and is going to put resources into making sure that poachers are not coming into that forest area. Um, and then simultaneous with that, there's no walls, there's no fencing and the elephants are allowed to go into the forest and you get relatively higher rates of elephant reproduction in this situation. So there's been studies that have been done, done, done on this, uh, not by myself, but by, but by biologists who are, are, are more trained to do this kind of like quantitative metrical comparative work. But they've looked at the reproductive rates of Asian elephants in zoos, one, as compared with forest work elephants, so the, the elephants I was most interested in too, versus wild elephants. Sorry, I'm trying to do one, two, three, and I think I'm not holding my fingers up. <laughs> and so what they found is that the reproductive rates are really bad in zoos, even really excellent zoos. They're really, they're really bad. And if you were to rely on zoos as, as a strategy of reproducing the Asian elephant species, you're basically consigning them to extinction. It's quite good in the case of forest work elephants, and it's somewhat better, though not a whole lot better in the case of wild elephants. So if you're going to make the determination about what kinds of situation to invest in for elephants, purely based on reproductive rates, you would go with wild elephants. But then if you were to counterbalance that with these kind of unfortunate, messy realities where there's these massive economic pressures for deforestation, there's the problem of policing and ivory poaching and 
you know, in order to bring in the state, in order to prevent the ivory poachers from coming in, the state brings all sorts of negative problems with, with itself. Heavy-handed policing in certain areas tends not to go down that well. So on the whole, you do to some degree get a kind of best of both world situation uh, from elephants that do work for humans in the day, but are permitted to go off into the forest at night. Now you asked about the chain. Yeah, there is this chain that's worn between the two forelegs of elephants in this situation. And there's a little bit more equipment on them. Like there's a wooden bell in a lot of cases, which signals uh, a particular distinctive musical note to the mahout who has to go off into the forest and find the elephant each morning. And also the elephant has to drag a chain that creates a little mark in the forest floor to give the mahout a fighting chance of finding his elephant in the morning. And the mahout always finds his elephant in the morning. It's not as difficult as it sounds because elephants in this situation really are wired a kind of a lot more like dogs than, well, than like cats, for, for example. You know, your dog, you, you call to your dog, your dog comes running, your dog is mostly good, not going to run away unless you've been like a really horrible owner or something like that. Whereas, you know, a cat's just going to do whatever it wants uh, for the most part. Uh, with, with, uh, with elephants, an elephant is not going to come running when you call it because it's like not part of their evolved sociality. But well, they and they're not, a- they're not really domesticated. I mean, they're, they're, right. they're captured from the wild and as you said, broken, which they're not, they're not bred to be domesticated. Um, so there's this, we'll talk about that sort of uneasy line maybe, um, mm-hmm. you know, but, but yeah, so I can imagine they're not going to just come running when they're called. Uh, but, but they still have a, soci- a sociality that if the mahout goes and finds the elephant each morning, the elephant will, will basically accept, okay, well, let's go through the morning routine, which is the elephant has to get its nice bath, which is something the elephant looks forward to and get, get like a nice scrub down, which is something the elephant looks forward to. And then they go into their work day of doing whatever tasks they wanted to do that the Mahout wanted to do during that day. Maybe it was moving a valuable piece of timber. Maybe it was going to a particular riverside because there's no bridge to go back and forth across the river. So the elephant has to bring passengers back and forth across the river. That's actually a much easier job from the elephant's point of view as compared with, with hauling timber. And, and, and actually, the elephant as a kind of a fairy service creature, that's something I would actually hope to see endure as a practice, whereas the elephant as uh, a creature that's assisting in the destruction of its own environment, which is the forest, which is what the timber industry does, even when practiced relatively sustainably, that's maybe something which I, I wouldn't want to necessarily see endure until till the end of time or anything like that. It doesn't seem as sustainable a practice. At any rate, yes. Yeah, so w- with these, yes. Yeah, so, so so with the the morning fetch of the elephant and the nightly release of the elephant, this is really a sort of a crucial and intrinsic aspect of this relationship. And it's from there that you can derive a lot of sense, uh, a lot of a sense of like, well, even if maybe this exact relationship shouldn't be copied in its, in its exact current form. If you can mitigate some of the negative aspects of how training a wild elephant occurs, that would be great. But there seems to be some sort of conservationist potential if these are one of the few people in the world who have figured out how to get trained elephants to reproduce with each other at relatively good rates, almost as if they were wild elephants. That seems really valuable to me. And that was something I was trying to capture and express uh, in the book. Yeah, well, and and so, and I think that is an important point 
because again, right, when we're thinking about conservation objectives, the exportation of the westernized perspective of conservation is usually to the detriment of the species for which one is trying to actually save, especially when you don't honor, respect, or include the cultures that are, and the people that are living in these areas whose lives are intertwined with these species. So while I may have a certain perspective on different practices, I do fundamentally believe that we have to respect other cultures and include them in the conversation and in the policies and in the practices of of the ultimate goal of persistence of species and ecosystems and landscapes and forests and and all of that. I struggled with this story though of Pak Chan. Is that how the male? Okay, so the way you wrote it, right? Like how he was just playful with this wild female, and um, and the Mahouts wanted to retrieve him in the morning, but he was very focused on her. And there was much discussion about how to sort of retrieve him and separate him from this wild female. And, and I, you know, I had this emotional response of why not just let him have his wild consort, you know, like, why not just let him have that time and mate with her. It's not like he's going to, you know, form a family unit and run off with her as Asian elephants are generally solitary. So I'm wondering, and, and that he had some sort of depression afterwards, but seemed to get over it. And so there was this kind of interpretation that sort of favored the Mahout's perspective. And, and I, in reading, was sort of conflicted and wanted why not wanted to know why not just let him have his weekend in the forest with his girl? Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the example of Pak Chan, uh, th- that was the chapter about the Vietnam war. Um, so Pak Chan was not an elephant I ever met. Uh, Pak Chan okay. was a, an elephant who was active. Uh, the Ho Chi Minh trail during the Vietnam war was this logistical trunk line for the, uh, the Viet Cong side of the war to connect their various kind of areas of activity. And it partially went through what we would today call Vietnam, but mostly through through what we today call Laos. And th- there was really heavy use of elephants as a means of transportation uh, along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And the South Vietnamese also used elephants as a kind of cross jungle logistical creature of logistics uh, to some to some degree too. And so, so this is sort of a this has to do with a kind of a a, a long standing history of militaries making use of elephants. And then if you get back into a sufficiently historical period, the point is to use elephants for combat because they're big, huge, frightening animals, right? Um, But relatively more recently, the involvement of elephants on a particular side of a war wouldn't be for combat, but rather for avoiding combat. So that was basically what the Viet Cong was using elephants for, was to basically move equipment along the Ho Chi Minh Trail underneath the forest canopy where American reconnaissance couldn't, uh, wouldn't be able to see them. And to this day, to this is to some extent what the, the largest rebel army in Myanmar, the Kachin Independence Army, uh, maintains uh, a team of about 50 to 60 elephants for the same 
purpose, although the practice may be smaller than it was a few years ago. So Pakchin was was a was a Viet Cong elephant along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. But yeah, it, there was a, like a fascinating account, which I, I just had the good fortune to to happen upon while doing this research, where a former Viet Cong Maput uh, was describing what it was like to work with his favorite elephant during this time uh, in his life. And there's this extraordinary uh, description of Pak Chan, who is a, a really, you know, like the lead elephant in their convoy along the trail. But Pak Chan gets distracted one night by like a beautiful wild female and kind of wants to go up with the female and not deal with the Ho Chi Minh Trail anymore. Because who would want to deal with the Ho Chi Minh Trail? Well, especially when loud. there's a girl involved. Come on. Right. Um, <laughs> but from the human point of view, like the point of view of uh, the Mahout and, the, you know, his, his uh, fellow soldiers or whatever, they need to get back to the trail. They have like presumably equipment like ammunition and food and medicine or, or whatever to bring to some sort of camp that's farther along the trail. And they need the elephant with them. They can't do it without the elephant. So there's this kind of human urgency in the situation. And there are other examples of things like that, um, human urgency in a situation that's reliant upon elephant labor. And it's not only, it, 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 and, the, and the examples are not only militaristic and warlike. Um, so you can find examples where there's like, there's a massive flood and humans are, who are stuck on some mid-river sandy island are about to get flooded and drowned. And the, uh, the river island desperately needs to be accessed. And so elephants have to be fetched in order to get the uh, humans off of that mid-river island. So sometimes the urgency has to do with something else besides human military conflict. But in the case of Pak Chan, it was this, it was this military conflict. And what was, what was really interesting to me about the case is that it gave you a sense, one, of how important the elephants were, at least to this side of, of that conflict. And then two, of this like really tricky negotiation that then ensued because of that, because like, the humans didn't just grab the elephant and yank him away. They had to sort of tiptoe around the situation very gingerly. It's no good to them if, uh, first of all, they could just be killed by the elephant if they really take the elephant off. So that, that would be that would be unlikely that the elephant would react that negatively. But if the elephant wasn't put in a relatively ameliorated mood about the whole situation, then the elephant wouldn't make for a very effective work partner along the trail going forward. Um, so there was a sort of tricky negotiation that sort of had to that 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 had to that had to take place. And what was also interesting to me about that situation is that, despite the fact that Pak Chan had basically been conscripted into this human military conflict, nonetheless he was still given time every single night along the forested edges of the Ho Chi of the Ho Chi Minh Trail to go off in the forest and and, and to and to find food and to find mates. And perhaps he did get that particular female in that story pregnant, and perhaps the female went to the West. It seems like there was a migration of wild elephants out of Vietnam and Laos in the aftermath of that war due to the really sort of brutal uh, deforestation weaponry that the American side of the war engaged in, uh, the use of Agent Orange and napalm and things like that. Plus, there was, at least according to things that... that, that, that uh, uh, records that I saw and accounts that I saw, there were actually standing orders for a few years of the war for American helicopter pilots to shoot elephants on sight because elephants were perceived as being uh, possibly the vehicles of the uh, of the Viet Cong. Well, at any rate, so there's there's a possibility that this female that Pak Chan did consort with did actually carry his offspring 
to somewhere in the West, away from the conflict, possibly in Shiaburi, which is the westernmost province of Laos, which to this day has the largest population of domesticated elephants in Laos. And so this would actually possibly be an example of this kind of subtle selective mechanism that I was talking about before, where possibly this is precisely an example of it's elephants like Pak Chan that were sort of likeliest to kind of even though Pak Chan himself actually did not survive the war, at least according to the account, um, he eventually succumbed to his to, to various kinds of to, to various wounds. At least the, the, who wasn't one hundred percent sure what happened, but it seems like it was something along those lines. So it is a really quite brutal story. But you know, God knows it's not the only brutal story of something that happened during that war. But he he actually there's a chance that he did actually succeed in at least having passing on his genes and having progeny elsewhere in the in the, uh, the 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 forested part of southeast asia that that survived after the war so um in that way it was it was a really interesting story to me at that at that level as well mm-hmm. but yeah it is it is a difficult story to to hear uh certainly and it, it that particular story was also sort of building upon another kind of historical leg of the book which is more focused on the centrality of elephants to uh, the Burma theater of World War II, where both sides, both the Allies and the Japanese, were really like at odds in terms of like they both wanted to commandeer as many elephants as possible because there was no other way to get themselves and to get their stuff across the the Burmese forest. And so the Vietnam War chapter sort of was was building on that. Well, and so it's really interesting because I was completely surprised, like thoroughly surprised. Right, my my knowledge and sort of. Uh, training is focused on the elephant and the biology of the elephant and not the interaction and the history uh, of elephants and humans. And so I was so surprised to learn, and you've mentioned it a few times that elephants were used in combat and warfare and these secret op- op- uh, operations and that they're still in, in the case of the KIA used, but you talk and you talked about in the book, Again, that's giants of the monsoon forest um, that elephants are crucial to moving across uh, difficult and treacherous even terrain. And and I was really struck by something you mentioned uh, in in that chapter about World War Two in particular, um, where elephants were involved in rescuing or, or, or transporting refugees right out of the area. And you mentioned how you visited one family who's, uh, it was the Bisa family, right? right? Um, Whose chief had had loaned an elephant. Uh, You talked about three elephants, but I kind of want to focus on Rundat. Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah. yeah. Close enough. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Again, to this tea farmer, it started with an M, um, oh, uh, Giles Mackerel. So to to help when Japan invaded um, the area in World War II, what was it like to meet the descendants of that chief who had that elephant who was involved in this rescue of people? I, I couldn't believe that we found that guy. That was like one of the most, I mean, there was a lot of lucky strikes in this research, but that was one of the most, I mean, I had been in this particular area. I knew about Rungdot from uh, various records from World War II and the aftermath, describing these extraordinary rescues that took place um, where a party of several hundred refugees, British people, Indian people, Burmese people, were fleeing from northern Burma into Assam. They went through this really jungly, difficult part 
of the mountain range, uh, the mountains, the Pakais, basically. The Pakais beginning to bleed into the eastern Himalayas, a really difficult area. And they did it. They didn't time it very well. Uh, and they found uh, in terms of when the, the rainstorms and the glacial melt were beginning to combine to rearrange the landscape. And they basically found themselves trapped at this river confluence and they couldn't get across it. They're just like these massive heaving rapids everywhere. You wouldn't be able to build a raft to get people across something like that. And they were beginning to starve. And it was really quite, quite a brutal situation. And so, yeah, this British tea farmer, Mackerel, um, who is active in, in Assam, the Lido area of Assam, uh, for which the Lido Road for, I don't know, World War II, Burma theater history buffs among the listeners, they'll probably have heard of the, the Lido Road. But Mackerel was able to organize several hundred elephants. Um, or was, I think of those several hundred, a number of that group was actually sent somewhere else. About a hundred elephants were sent to that particular river confluence to, to rescue all those people who were trapped. And there, there's actually footage that can be found of this, like video footage, because Macro actually brought uh, like a portable uh, video, like movie camera, uh, which is extraordinary in and of itself that, that, that he was able to do that. And you can see some of the elephants sort of tiptoeing into these massive waves. This is like, imagine going to the beach on one of those days when the waves are like five or six feet high in terms of the white caps. And it's like, it's a good day if you're a surfer, but if you just wanted to swim, it's kind of a bit much to take in. And that's what the waves on these rivers look like. This is like the uh, the Dehing River and the Dafa River, if you want to look it up on the map. And I've seen rivers like that in that area when it's that time of year. And yeah, it looks it looks like way too intense to be able to, to get across it with any particular vehicle, let alone an elephant. But the elephants actually pull it off. Um, not, not at literally the worst time of the day. They would wait till a relatively calm spell in the day and the elephants would get back and forth across. But this tea planter mackerel had to basically arrange this through a local powerful family, the Bisas, who are basically ethnically Kachin or Singfo, as they're called in the area, that uh, was in charge of, that actually had the elephants. It wasn't mackerel himself who had the elephants. It was this uh, this Bisa uh, sort of uh, family or, or clan or however it should be thought of. And yeah, it was just extraordinary because because I remember when I was doing research in that area, we would ask various elephant owning people various questions about you know what's it like to catch elephants, what's your uh, you know who is your favorite elephant from your life that you worked with? Can you tell me a story about rescuing people um, using elephants in the middle of monsoon season? They almost all had stories to uh, in that category, by the way. And then I would say, by the way, in these historical records, I read about that the lead elephant in this rescue that happened at that confluence, which is so famous in local lore, was named Rungdot. What does this word mean? Do you know anything about Rungdot? And people would scratch their heads and say, I've never heard that term. But then uh, it wasn't really me. It was uh, it was my guide who was bringing me from place to place. Uh, and he wasn't from an elephant handling group, he, but he was from a kind of a group that yeah, they're sort of considered to be kind of intimidating in the area. They have a certain historical reputation. And he became very, he because I think as I kept asking about Rungdot over and over, he became very fixated on this Rungdot question. And he kept pushing and pushing until suddenly someone snapped his finger and said, oh, wait a minute, you want to go talk to the Bisa family. I'm pretty sure you're talking about the elephant, which was the favorite elephant of uh, Bisa Laknung, this old man in the Bisa compound. When he was a little boy, I think that's who you mean. Um, it was just, I couldn't believe that this actually worked. It was just one of these weird eureka moments uh, when doing uh, research in the field that you don't expect to happen. 
But yeah, it was it was amazing uh, visiting this comp uh, this particular compound uh, owned by this by this family, and you can probably get a sense of the fact that this is a relatively powerful family by the standards of the area. They had like a big a big house with actual like an actual concrete foundation, which you know most of the houses in the area are made of uh, of bamboo with maybe like some uh, maybe some wooden pillars at best. So this is a more kind of like a, a more kind of uh, extravagant home. And they've actually had uh, American visitors before there, but the American visitors they've had before were veterans from World War II who had been stationed in the Burmese theater of World War II during uh, during the construction of the Lido Road, which was important to get supplies from British India into into southern China, where the uh, the nationalists and the and, and the uh, the Chinese Communist Army both had both had their forces. And so, because these particular American veterans had actually uh, been stationed more or less in that area. They had actually come back to the Bisa compound to say hello and sort of pay their thanks. And they had like a big event. And this had happened like a decade before my visit. But no one had ever come to them asking about elephants before um, and asking about their relationship with elephants. And so it was really quite an extraordinary conversation with this, um, you know, elderly gentleman. And he was recalling this particular elephant, Rungdot, who was his favorite elephant when he was a boy. And he was a boy somewhat after World War II. So the events I was interested in historically, um, it happened before the frame of his memory. But he was able to tell stories about, you know, he but he would go off in the forest with Rungdot the elephant, by then retired from heavy labor. And they would do things like they would cross rivers and play games or he would throw things on the forest floor to see if Rungdot could find it with his trunk and then Rungdot would pick it back up and give it to him and and things like that. I mean, it was just, it was, it was an, a, an awesome discussion to have. And then I also remember Bisa Laknung, that's the name of the, the, um, the elderly gentleman I was talking with that day. He had a map collection, which like dated way, way back uh, of the whole area. Now as a geographer, this really appealed to me. And so I sort of like, I don't know, I, I, I sort of felt like I'd found like a kindred spirit at some level, like a kindred human spirit. Yeah, that, that was, I mean, it was one of several interviews, which was pretty mind blowing uh, from the point of view of the interviewer. I can think of others as well that were that that were um, equally, equally meaningful. You've touched upon one of the things that made this research so fun to do. I mean, one of them was obviously that I got to hang out with elephants and, you know, I got to ride elephants and all that stuff. But but meeting these these people who had these extraordinary stories to tell about the elephants and these extraordinary and quite surprising relationships with a very kind of high stakes history that we don't normally think of as being connected to something like people riding elephants. We think of people riding elephants as something that happens like in tourism parks, and it is, but it's also something that happened in the middle of one of the most important theaters of World War II, which is like, you know, the biggest geopolitical conflagration ever. Uh, that was something that was really exciting to be able to, to interact with on the spot. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is what has made for me this book so fascinating is the interconnectedness and how you weave together, you know, the elephants, the people, the history, the geopolitical landscape, all of that. And it's clear that you have an admiration of elephants. And so I'm wondering, did that develop in doing this project or? Did you have that? And how did this experience change you both on your perspective of elephants and your sort of experience in terms of as a researcher and as a as a person? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. 
I mean, I did admire elephants beforehand. I think a great many of us do. Uh, they're big and charismatic and they have they have huge ears and they have the trunk and they have a certain reputation. I don't know. I, I, I think that because humans co-evolved um, either with elephants or with elephant-like animals like mammoths, uh, elef- uh, animals in the uh, sort of elephantidae genus, I might be mixing up where in the Linnaean taxonomy it is, but but you get the idea. I, I think that humans all kind of have an intuitive admiration of big charismatic megafauna like, like elephants, even though oftentimes for many humans, they're in a situation where part of that is they have to hunt and kill them. And then of course you have like jerky humans who go off and hunt elephants just to be jerks. I mean, that that that's certainly a phenomenon too. And so I think I had that beforehand, but in in a lot of ways, I think I did not understand before doing the research just how intelligent and flexible the elephants are. I, I certainly wouldn't have guessed that. I, I think I had sort of thought, well, aren't they kind of like rhinoceroses, except they have longer memories and and all the stuff that that I found out about where you can have wild elephants that go to domesticity and then back to the wild, and you can have elephants that are specialists in moving difficult pieces of timber or in rescuing people mid-river or in moving things along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And they have to think about, well, they they need to mate with a female at night, but then they have to go back to their humans. And um, we haven't even talked about this, but the elephants learn uh, between like 60 and 100 command terms, in addition to which they take uh, various kind of tactile signals from their mafoot's feet, which will sort of tap upon their ears and their forehead to tell them various kinds of things like, stomp that obstacle out of the way with your right foot and pick this up with your trunk and let the passenger onto your back with your left rear foot now, like sort of complicated operations like that. And elephants need to be able to learn that. And because elephants are sometimes traded amongst these forest peoples from one ethno-linguistic area to the other, for example, from the Kachin to the Compti or from Compti people to Burmese people, et cetera, they sometimes have to learn new command terms because Though the command term systems are kind of a little bit separate from the surrounding ethno-linguistic milieu they're in, and there's even a sort of mystery there in terms of where some of these terms came from linguistically, which I, I have to admit I didn't really get into as a researcher, but I noted I noted the mystery to it. There's a different set of command terms that do exist in different areas, despite the overlap. And so the elephants have to be flexible at that level too. And so the degree of problem solving uh, the likelihood that the elephants are exerting some degree of a kind of agency over the situation that they've kind of found themselves within. Now, I'm sure that they would prefer in a kind of utopian world to just have the vast, vast, you know, millions of square miles of forest land to themselves again. But given the situation they find themselves in, it, it, it does seem that there's a certain degree of agency ele- uh, many of the Asian elephants are exerting where they want to have this partnership with ele- with human beings that are keeping them situated in what remains of the Asian forest in a way that that minimizes the odds that they wind up being killed, um, whether through antagonistic encounters with farmers or antagonistic encounters with ivory poachers, et cetera. That was, the latter was sort of more a kind of hunch or intuition I arrived at. It's not something I can prove by like interviewing an elephant. <laughs> well, Nor would I do like a brain scan on an elephant in an attempt to prove agency. I'm not really oh. that kind of researcher. It just more seemed that the pattern seemed to suggest that 
the elephants are kind of get the situation they're in. It's like, well, we're either going to work with these people who want us to take people back and forth across that river, or we're going to be in the same situation as the wild elephant herd, which barely even exists anymore. Um, and they barely even exist anymore because there's all sorts of other negative pressures that the Asian elephants are under, which is why their species uh, numbers have been declining so precipitously. Uh, and there seems to be a level at which the Asian elephants kind of have absorbed all the information about the larger abstract situation that they need in order to make a kind of a decisions that are organized around surviving. Well, okay. So I want to push back against that a tiny bit, not the part of, you know, I mean, to me, it's very clear, uh, elephants have theory of mind. They navigate social relationships. Uh, they are problem solvers. They have language, um, and their ability to learn human taught language and communication is not surprising to me, but I don't think, but the idea that they've sort of you know, see the situation and realize that this is the best they can do, you know, to me, they're captured. So that's not, they don't have agency. They have zero agency about this interaction in the sense that they didn't choose this interaction, right? They didn't sort of wander into a camp and say, hey, you know, I feel like this is probably a better space for me to be in. There are some species where that has happened, like in particular, female grizzly bears have moved closer to human habitation because it protects them from male grizzly bears who will um, hurt the cubs. So there's this uneasy, you know, it's safer over here around people than it is, you know, over here where my cub could be killed by a random male grizzly bear. And, and that's been noted in Scandinavia. But having said that, you know, so the power really rests with the people. And I think that there are cases which you talked about where the elephants harm people and 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 that may be that particular relationship they have with a particular human um, is not positive, is not, um, you know, there's maybe there's something going on. But there's also this. And I was talking about this with a guest last week where and it was specifically about orangutans, but also just captive animals came up, mm. you know, um, and this concept of rage and a, a seething resentment that can develop and burn for a really long time before there's an attack. And elephants are kind of notorious for being one of the most dangerous animals to work with in a zoo. And being an elephant keeper puts you at high risk for being attacked, you know, by the elephants at some point. And, and so, you know, we were sort of discussing that this resentment at the captivity at the, you know, and in this case, maybe forced labor, who knows, right? So I'm just pushing back against the idea that they are like, yep, this is a pretty good situation. It minimizes our risk out there. And, you know, I'm not sure that they are aware that it's safer in some way. Having said that though, I kind of want to come back to what you were saying about conservation and how the persistence of the interaction between the human and the elephant in this region may be the only thing that saves the Asian elephant. And so I want to kind of give the space for that conversation a little bit and see if you would be willing to expand a little bit more on your thinking about that. Sure. Yeah. I'll just briefly respond to your pushback, which which I'm, I'm grateful for. I actually wish I wish I was getting more pushback. Uh, I, I had actually 
I had wanted the, the, the book to provoke debate. Uh, I knew that I knew that there was a certain animal ethics uh, point of view, which maybe would not just dismiss it completely out of hand, but would, would find there's a lot, lot, lot uh, would find a lot of contentious things uh, in the book. Um, and it was a debate that I wanted to uh, exist. I, I guess I would just briefly say before before getting to the to, to, to your second question that you're definitely right that they're captured. They're captured out of the wild. How could that be voluntary since it's ca- since it's captured and it, it doesn't make sense? But on the other hand, they're released into the forest every night, and for the most part, they don't run away. They have this nightly opportunity to escape, and the opportunity to escape becomes a really really good during these sort of high stakes high urgency emergency situations, um, such as the example of uh, mackerel taking the Bisa family's elephants to that flooding river confluence. That was a perfect opportunity for any of those elephants to escape. And at least according to mackerel and his accounts, or his accounts that were absorbed by this other book that, that that has most of the information, of the 100 elephants, only one ran off into the forest uh, when they were being taken uh, even though, you know, it was a multi-night trip to get from where the Bisa family is all the way out to this river complex, which is way off in the mountains. It was like it was like a multiple day journey. And so that that suggests a kind of a degree of of loyalty, such as, you know, uh, humans tend to feel towards each other, such as dogs tend to feel towards humans or humans towards dogs. And so that that aspect does sort of strike me as there seems to be a kind of a a kind of agency that's happening in that kind of uh, situation. Oh yeah, go ahead. I oh yeah. Okay. Go. So before we get to the conversation conservation part, since you welcomed the debate, I'm going to, you know, I'd like to respond. And this is a, a positive spirited debate for anybody listening, right? Because these are important conversations to have. I mean, I think that creating the space to have this kind of discussion is incredibly important. And, and I would just say that we know from, the, um, you know, animal behavior sort of, and thinking about captive animals, it is not surprising to me that the vast majority would not choose to escape because there's a mindset and a psychological trauma that happens depending on the breaking that's used, as you mentioned, sort of the training, you know, I have seen captive animals, um, in certain captive situations, and that may not be for all of these these elephants, but where they have been released into a better situation and they can't process that. They don't, they, their confidence, they're, they're, they're so um, traumatized by the experience that they had that they don't even know how to uh, experience something different. So they, they would not choose to actually be free. They choose the safety of, of the captive situation. So Neither of us can get into the mind of any of these elephants. And so we don't know. And so I think we have to like maybe leave open the possibility for both states of mind. Mm. Perhaps there are some elephants with certain personalities that find it amenable to live in these relationships and interactions with people. And maybe there are other personalities where they don't recognize the opportunity to be free because of the experience of being captive, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I, I, you know, there's a level at which the question of what's, of what's voluntary and what isn't voluntary, it gets very thorny. Like if you think about this, 
not in terms of talking about elephants or orangutans or dogs, but in terms of talking about humans, we used to be off in the wild and now we're not. And was that something that was, I mean, I guess we as a species chose to do that, but it's not like you or I individually voluntarily chose to make that transition. And if you or I were plopped down into the same kind of living situation as our ancestors from 50,000 BC, we would have no idea what to do. And, and so I wonder if maybe that kind of analogy uh, isn't at some level uh, more appropriate. But, but anyway, I, I do want to talk about the, the, the conservationist potential that, that I, I, I do see from a lot of these practices that, that um, I was lucky enough to, to, to speak with uh, people who engage in these practices firsthand about and to, to see happening to some degree. And on the whole, I guess like in a perfect world, we would like, if we wanted to save the Asian elephant species, which is currently basically the demographic trend line there is full on extinction by 2100. Like it, it, it's really, it's really not good. That it's not quite as bad with African elephants. Again, even though African elephants tend to draw a bit more international attention, maybe because they're a bit bigger and a bit more arguably charismatic looking, but there's about 10 times more African elephants than Asian elephants. And I guess in a perfect world, we would just have a massive like internationally managed park the size of like Yellowstone plus Yosemite splat in the middle of Southeast Asia where all the big uh, sort of like rainforest megafauna could live. It seems really unlikely. I mean, this is a part of the world that, you know, uh, the rainforest area itself is not a massive center of human density, but it's between two of the densest areas of human settlement on the planet. We're talking about India and China and this area of like the Transpetkai rainforest region is right between those two countries. And it just doesn't see, and it also has lots of like valuable natural resources in terms of like its logistical situation, lots of roads and highways and sort of, I don't know, the, the, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative has all sorts of pr uh, programs for what's supposed to go through that area. Preservation and protection in terms of like having big natural parks that are managed by, managed nationally or internationally seems really important, but I don't think I don't think putting all of the eggs in that basket is going to save the species. And so I, I really, I get very frustrated with a kind of purist mindset that it's like, either we set up that park or we're just not going to bother doing anything to try to help the, the species survive. No, I think that there's some potential in the existing elephant tourism park kind of model where it's like tourists want to come see elephants. They go to parks. If the parks are set up in a particular way, where like if they have enough land, then the elephants can be released into the forested part of the park and the tourist elephants will mate with each other. That's been shown to kind of work in certain areas, but I have, I have a number of issues with that. First of all, in the book, the issue that I articulate with that is that I'm, I don't think it economically scales. And the whole idea with conserving Asian elephants should be something that actually rebounds the number of Asian elephants there are. And the more Asian elephants there are, I think the less tourism dollars each individual elephant can pull in for herself or himself. Um, so that right now, I think the elephant tourism industry is able to pull in a lot of money because elephants are so rare. But the point of conservation, I would think, is to make them less rare because right now they're basically um, they're, they're on the cusp of being critically endangered. Um, so so that's, that, that's an issue that I, I articulate with that in the book. What I'm I've subsequently been thinking about quite a lot. I mean, we're in this uh, uh, pandemic era and I don't know, are we going to be able to return to the time when a kind of 
emerging global middle class is just able to bounce around the globe, visiting tourism parks, going to retreats, going to beaches, just, you know, going on some big international trip every year? Or are we starting a transition towards a different paradigm? And if we're starting a transition to a different paradigm, if we're transitioning to a different paradigm, again, I I don't know how uh, valuable the tourism park model can be for helping to rebound the Asian elephant uh, species numbers. In addition to which, you have the fact that most of these tourism camps are in fact significantly walled in, significantly enclosed, and have not been able to get particularly promising reproductive numbers. So there's important exceptions uh, to that. In, in terms of thinking about, okay, so what kinds of practices seem to have a lot of potential? It does seem like the communities that I was talking with, um, because they're able to keep their elephants situated in the forest, they're able to derive economic value from that without having to, to depend upon a tourism market to do so, because the, instead they're getting the transportation value, and to some extent they're getting the uh, commodity extraction value. So. I would kind of want the commodity extraction value to be diminished over time because it's because that's destructive of the forest itself, timbering, mining, these kinds of things. And then in addition to that, they're getting relatively good reproductive rates and they're keeping other kinds of forces that are uh, antagonistic towards the elephants, such as poaching and other kinds of economic forces of deforestation. They're keeping those things relatively at bay. And so I think that there's quite a lot of potential there And in particular, the value of these elephants during flood season, I think that there's a lot to be looked at there as something to possibly invest in. Uh, With with climate change, it seems like this particular region and some other parts of the world as well are going to become even more flood prone than they are already. And and then assuming that human population continues to go up, that means more people will be living in highly flood uh, flood prone land. And it's possible that any kind of value elephants maybe have for helping people get around flood uh, prone land um, is something that could actually be invested in at a more kind of like bureaucratic and governmental level Mm -hmm. um, that would sort of realign human needs with elephant needs. Um, So that's something that I think maybe merits a lot of attention as, as, as something to explore. Well, listen, I agree with so much of what you said. The one thing, you know, I will say is I personally am not a fan of elephant tourist parks where people come and pay to get rides on elephants. Like personally, like I don't support that. And at the same time, I recognize that with the pandemic, the the impact has not just been to, in some cases, animals, uh, but but the economic impact to people from the collapse of the tourist industry. I'm not necessarily sorry to see elephant riding tourist parks go away. I agree that this, the preserving the cultural relationship and cultural interaction and functional value that elephants can provide humans done in a, you know, it's almost an ecosystem service essentially is what I hear you saying, right? They, there's this value that they provide to navigating the landscape that may actually, there might be an increased need for that in the future, but also these forested areas where the places where you worked, where they go out into the forest, it requires intact forest, right? Uh, to a certain extent, really intact forest to support, um, these elephants. And so, I, I think that one of the things that's so important about a lot of what you just said is this sort of 
preservationist, keep it wild, only parks that are managed and everything and everyone needs to be kept out of don't work. They don't work in the real world with real people needing to solve real problems. And so I I agree with you that if we want to see elephant, Asian elephants in particular persist into the future, we need those forests. And the best way to have those forests is to keep these relationships and interactions happening. Yeah. I mean, you need, you need local people to be attached to the forest and for, for both, uh, for, for both like existing structural and also sort of historical and traditional reasons, the, the connection between a lot of the local people in the Transpekai area, the Kachin area, uh, project, the link between people and the forest is precisely the elephants and the ability to ride an elephant into the forest to go to the thing in the forest that you're interested in. And so once you sort of cut that uh, cut that relationship out of the picture. I mean, here's a, here's a, a sort of awful story about something that happened in the Hukong Valley uh, a decade or so ago, is that there was all this international pressure um, spearheaded actually by uh, conservationists in the U.S., very well-meaning ones. This is not not intended because it really is criticism of them, um, though it didn't go well, to get a tiger, a tiger conservationist park in the Hukong Valley, the world's largest tiger conservationist park. And the Burmese government decided to, yeah, let's accept this. Let's get all these like international resources and funding for the park. Local ethnic minority people, the Kachin in particular, were kept out of this whole process. And then what actually wound up happening on the ground was that the Burmese military regime gradually started giving away tracts of the park towards their crony friends to do things like plant sugar, uh, sugar plantations and cassava plantations. And so in actuality, what wound up happening with this particular park, the Hukong Valley Tiger Tiger Preserve, is that the the purest, like, let's keep the jungle pure, that mindset inadvertently, I don't think it was a conspiracy or anything like that. It, it, It was inadvertent and naive. It wound up just kind of creating a mechanism by which uh, the Burmese military regime could disappropriate local sort of forest-oriented peoples of their land, force them into the cities where other kinds of newer industries are taking root and kind of re- you know, force them to reinvent themselves as basically like a wage-earning urban population. And in the meantime, what was supposed to become this tiger preserve, it never really happened. And instead, it became uh, this somewhat depressing uh, kind of like mass agriculturalized area. Um, which interestingly, the in the aftermath of the Burmese coup, the Kachin Independence Army has now actually kind of swept into that exact area and kicked out the cronies. And it's not quite sure what's going to happen next. They might just take over the plantations to like generate some cash for themselves, or they might uh, they might let the the forest reclaim the area so that they can actually put they can actually put Kachin people back there. Um, it's it's not it's not clear to me what's going to actually happen with that. All, all of that stuff is pretty fascinating. I mean, that's what yeah, happens. That's what happens when you don't have inclusive conservation that lets the people and the communities have a voice at the table for what's going on. And these are this is sort of the well-meaning westernized conservation perspective that's been exported and largely failed in many areas. And so there is a movement and I think a mind shift, a mental shift that's happening with with some organizations to make sure that they're engaged with the people uh, that live in those areas 
and, you know, are practicing community-based conservation that's focused on the people and their connection with the wildlife. And speaking of the people and the, the military coup you, you mentioned, you know, I don't want to ignore what's happening in Myanmar or, or like, or Burma, right? We, we sort of tried to make sure we, we refer to it as Myanmar as it currently is at present. But as you mentioned, there's a, there was a military coup and protests have been rocking the region, um, attacks on ethnic minorities, including the Kachin, which you've mentioned um, quite a bit and that were important to your work. Are you worried about the, the people that you developed relationships with, with what's going on? Yeah. Every single person that I, I, I worked with and spoke to who is still in Myanmar, including the Kachin part of Myanmar. I'm worried about every single one of them. Uh, No one is in a great situation. I would say in terms of their personal safety and the safety of their family members, it's pretty bad. Going there over the years, I did my research between 2013 and 19. I don't know. It's like the the, the, the country kind of, it, it opened up to, to foreign visitors and it seemed like it was heading in a much more democratic direction. And at least the first few years of doing the research, there was always this sort of spark of optimism. It, it's part of what made it really a fun place to visit because, I don't know, everything in the United States always seems so gloomy and pessimistic. And then, you know, I'd go to, I'd fly into Yangon and the, the, the change in mood was like instantaneous. You could just sort of sense it um, getting into the city. Uh, and then it started to go away by, I would say, around 2016. It partially had to do with the Rohingya humanitarian crisis, which uh, a, a year or so after that degenerated into basically a full-blown um, ethnic cleansing campaign slash genocide. Uh, and so, so that was beginning to happen. I did visit that area once, but, but uh, that wasn't really connected to my, my elephant-related research because there's not a lot of elephant stuff in that, in that sort of more Rohingya region. It's sort of different. Uh, the Kachin region, so, so the Kachin, uh, there's been a, a, a long-running uh, conflict between various Kachin ethnic militants or ethnic armed organizations, in particular the KIA, it's the most important one, between them and the main Burmese military called the Tatmadaw, going back to the early 1960s. I mean, basically nonstop with a couple ceasefire periods, but even in the ceasefire periods, you see some flare-ups of, of violence. And so it's it's by some accounts, it's one of the world's longest running civil wars. And the KIA really drew my attention as a researcher interested in the use of elephants um, for moving across the forest, kind of relatively undetected, uh, because they have those 50 to 60 elephants that they uh, that they use precisely for that purpose, uh, which I mentioned earlier. And so that was something that I actually had originally gone to Kachin State precisely in order to interview people um, in the KIA about their experiences doing that, which is a sort of difficult interview to get. But back in 2015 slash 16, I was lucky enough uh, that some people I knew there were able to, to link me up with, with those interviews. And it was, it was a, definitely a, a fascinating topic from my point of view. And more, more recently, uh, what's been going on is that, first of all, the KIA, after being a little bit taciturn about the coup for like about a week or so, they condemned the coup and expressed very sort of um, vigorous solidarity with the more kind of urban-based uh, civil disobedience movement happening in Yangon and Mandalay and Naypyidaw, which are like the big cities in uh, southern Myanmar. And then since since that point, this is sort of what was going on back in 
around March that, I, that I'm describing. Uh, since then, increasingly more energy from the civil disobedience movement has begun to swing towards several of these uh, ethnic armed organizations because the, the, they're, I mean, this is partially a consequence of the fact that the West has decided basically not to get involved in the conflict in Myanmar, which I'm not sure what I think of that. I, I'm a little bit torn about it. I tend to be pretty, you know, like a pretty anti-war, like America should stay out of it kind of, kind of, kind of person. But in the case of Myanmar, obviously because of my sense of personal attachment to, 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 to the place and to friends I have there, I was sort of like, no, actually this time I kind of want America to get involved. Like my, my, my emotions sort of took over in terms of determining my, my, uh, my position on it. But realistically that's that's not what's going to happen and so uh what's happened is that the civil disobedience movement is increasingly turning to these ethnic armed militias in particular the kia and a few others for help for training um in some ways it it, it has the it has the look of what could be a, a much more violent situation than what we're currently seeing alternatively you could read this as something which is going to intimidate the military regime the tatmada into you know coming to the table and, you know, coming up with some compromise that will, you know, let Aung San Suu Kyi, the leader of the, of the, uh, the, the Liberal Democratic Party, out of the um, uh, uh, out of her current condition of imprisonment. So it's hard to know exactly what will happen. But, you know, it, it's it's completely shifted the sort of geopolitical situation and significance of Kachin State and of the KIA and probably of uh, a number of the regions where I did interviews, which over the course of the last several years had sort of slipped out of the KIA's fingers and had really become government dominated areas. And now that's reversing uh, in a way which is pretty fascinating to me. And I'm basically anticipating that uh, certain elephant reliant mobilities that had previously existed when the KIA was there and then had gone away when the government came in and kicked the KIA out because the government is not capable of instituting its own elephant-based mobilities are now probably going to come back. So that's sort of just as like a researcher, that's obviously interesting to me. But yeah, at a more kind of personal level, I'm really worried for my friends. And it's very frustrating because I don't know what to, I don't know what to do. Like I don't know how to help. It's like, you know, it's really tough being a citizen of like what is still basically the most powerful country in the world and telling my friends in this country that I don't know what to do and no one here seems to have any idea what to do. Um, so that just at a, at a kind of a personal level, that's how I feel about it. Thanks for sharing that. And I, I don't know what will happen either. And I hope that you have the opportunity to go back and connect with your friends and that they'll be safe at some point. And, and, um, and maybe we'll have you on to talk more about that when that time comes. Now, I know you're super busy and you have a lot of things going on. And so I want to let you go. But before I do, just to kind of um, you got another project happening in the works mm -hmm. on transportation and this connection with animals. And I was wondering if you could just give us a little sneak peek so then we can we can bring you back to talk about it. Sure. It's going to be another book. And, and I, I, in case you hadn't noticed, because I kept sort of trying to slip it into our discussion of elephants, I am really interested in this issue of animals as a means of transportation during flood conditions. And on the one hand, I know that that can sort of sound like, well, wait a minute, floods, isn't that like a bad situation for animals to be in because it's dangerous? But it's not really quite so simple. A lot of big sort of powerful quadrupeds are precisely 
evolve to wade and swim across water features. So there's that to consider. Um, there's the fact that if you imagine a somewhat more ecologically healthy situation where rivers and other water features are permitted to migrate and meander naturalistically, rather than forcing them to be rigid with like, you know, um, uh, levees and other kinds of um, hydraulic infrastructure like that. If you imagine a river that's constantly meandering and, and migrating, then you can't really have fixed road infrastructure going back and forth across it because the bridge can't, the bridge can't get up on its feet and change where it is. Or maybe like a futuristic kind of like robot bridge could do that. But <laughs> um, wading and fording animals ha- uh, basically provide humans with mobility across transient water features, which is the thing I'm interested in. So obviously, from the way I've been describing elephant-reliant human mobilities in Myanmar, in Northeast India, that's one big case study or example that I want to talk about as far as this topic is concerned. But there's a couple others I want to talk about, one of which is actually can be visited to this day in Northwestern Germany, completely different part of the world, different standard of living, just to get across the fact that this this sort of value system is not reliant on like, you know, third world poverty. Um, Germany is a pretty rich country. Last time I checked, uh, there are these offshore islands in a, a bay called the Vaden Sea in northwestern Germany, which is on the North Sea. And in the case of some of these islands, in particular, a very sort of strategic lighthouse island, the way people get back and forth to the lighthouse is in is on convoys of wading horses or fording horses wading horses, however you want to think about it. It's a little hard to visualize, uh, perhaps, but this is actually several kilometers of tidal mudflats, and the horses basically provide the best mode of access across this, this kind of obstacle or physical, transient physical landscape, or however it should be thought of. And why don't they, why don't the Germans just build a causeway? Well, building a causeway for the sake of just a single lighthouse would be sort of ecologically disruptive and not worth it. Or why, for that matter, don't they build uh, a dredge out a, a, a low tide canal so you could get back and forth to the island at low tide? Well, that similar answer, right? That would be very ecologically disruptive. So having something that's relatively light and can go back and forth in both conditions, both high tide and low tide, though the horses can't literally do it at the highest tide because they're not sufficiently good swimmers, but they can they can wade most of the trip. Uh, so that, that 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 sort of German case study and the general kind of intertidal geography of that region in general is something I want to talk about. And then finally, a third case study is in the far west of China in Xinjiang, uh, the Xinjiang region, where the uh, the Uyghur right, humanitarian crisis is currently happening. And uh, historically, uh, up until the mid 20th century, there was actually a kind of a, a subset of the Uyghur culture that lived on a migrating lake. The lake would migrate in terms of its location across a big desert in the Uyghur area called the Taklamakan Desert. Uh, this is called Lopnor, this particular lake. And there was a, a subset of the Uyghur culture that would live along this particular uh, uh, lake as it would migrate on the desert and had a sort of interesting animal-reliant mobility networks across this transient landscape of its own. So horses and camels for the most part. And boats too. Boats come up a lot in, in this topic, but there's a kind of a interrelationship of, of, of fording animals and sort of small-scale boating cultures that I'm trying to get across in this project. So it's those three uh, case studies, and that, that's what I'm going, and, and the sort of similarities and differences there that I'm going to be um, writing about next. 
That's, I can't wait to read it. So thank you so much for telling us about that. And I guess with that, I, I have to say, this has been such a really interesting conversation. I've learned so much from your book. I encourage everybody to read it. It's a fascinating topic. And I think it brings up a lot of important points that are worthy of discussion. And it is not a simple problem and it is not a simple solution uh, in all of these kind of issues. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great discussion, uh, way more in depth than I'm used to. So that was, that was great to experience. Thank you. In some ways, even after both of these episodes, I feel like we're left with more questions than answers. Is it important to maintain cultural traditions, forms of economy, and transportation methods when it involves capturing an endangered species? The idea that this type of interaction between humans and elephants can ever be a partnership simply just doesn't reflect reality. The fact that they're captured, often as calves, taken from their mothers, and forced into a life of work that benefits humans really speaks to the inequality of this interaction. The power rests solely in the hands of us, humans, our wants, our needs, and our desires. It is not a partnership. It is not cooperation. It is ownership. It is control. And sometimes it's abuse. But is this what's necessary to save them? That is the big question. Another question is, should elephant tourism be excluded from this? There's quite a bit of information on how the tourism industry further perpetuates the unhealthy interaction many tourists have with wildlife and where the elephants themselves are not protected from abuse. At the end of the day, this is a complicated issue and it reveals how conservation can be messy and where the exportation of the Western preservationist mindset often can create more problems than it solves. Thanks for listening, everyone. And hey, if you're enjoying the show, please like it and share it so other people can find it. Don't forget, you can find the show notes on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. Tune in next week because I've got a really spectacular guest, Dr. Jasmine Scarlett. She's a volcanologist that also specializes in the human dimension of what it means to live around volcanoes.